Well, we're in this series, Pursuing Pursuit, Chasing God's Heart. And we want to be those kind of people that are chasing God's heart. And what do you do? Well, you know, why do people who are filled with God's Spirit struggle with sin still? I mean, what can be done about it? What hope do we have? And we're looking at David as an example. And early in his life, David was recognized as a man after God's own heart. And he was chosen by God to become king of Israel. And he was anointed and he was promised and he was filled with God's spirit. And he was challenged and tested with uh, big uh, challenges like taking on the giant Goliath. And then he had tests of time and waiting and patience and tests of faith. And when he became king, it says over and over and over in the text, he put God first. He inquired of the Lord. He moved the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. But unfortunately, David had a blind spot. And he didn't put first God first in his uh, marriage or in giving guidance to his children. He was an absentee father. And it only got worse as his kids got older. Well, last year we went to a conference down at North Coast Church in Vista called the Sticky Church Conference, talking about how to help people stick in your church. And the pastor there, Pastor Chris Brown, was making a point, but he said, some things that we do aren't sin, they're just stupid. He said, but it's pretty easy to get from stupid into sin. And that's what we see here in the life of David. Now, aren't you kind of glad that the canon of the Bible was closed before you were born so that, you know, God isn't using you as an example of what to do and what not to do? I mean, God doesn't, he just kind of puts it all on display. He doesn't save anything for David to say, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed about that. Maybe you could, don't have to tell that part. But uh, so God told the whole story. Um, today we're looking at David's downward spiral into stupidity and into sin. And then God's corrective measures and forgiveness. And David's life afterwards. And so I would guess most of us are pretty glad that God used somebody else as the example and not our lives and tell on us the good, the bad, and the ugly. So we're picking up the story in 2 Samuel 11. David's been king for a while. He's had a long run of public success. He outweighed King Saul. He showed honor to the Lord's anointed uh, all the way until Saul died. Then David established uh, the kingdom under his own control. He had won wars against their arch enemies, the Philistines. He had even gotten other enemies to come and provide supplies and uh, expertise in building the palace for him in Jerusalem. And he brought the worship of Yahweh God right into the center of the new capital city, Jerusalem. And he brought the Ark of the Covenant there with a great big to-do we talked about last week. And so they had exciting worship of God right at the center. He's befriended the son of his best friend, Jonathan, uh, who... Uh, it was uh, He extended uh, grace and generosity to him, brought him to eat at the king's table on a regular basis. Life is good. David's living large. He's wealthy. He's prosperous. The country's at peace. He can do whatever he wants. And although God's Holy Spirit has rushed on him and has been his closest companion and counselor most of his life, sin is lurking at the door. And you will struggle with it every day for the rest of your life. Even though you put Jesus Christ in charge, there is that struggle. We have what Wesley called this bent towards sinning. And so you'll struggle every day. And you, need to be, you will be tempted to fall short of the glory of God in thought and in word and in deed. And sometimes our successes, like David had had plenty, just stacked them up, can lull us into a complacency. Like we're taking a spiritual nap or something where we ease up on the disciplines that we know God wants us to do. We go lax on our training. We take a spiritual vacation, so to speak. Look out. Because sometimes there's a disconnect between our following God and are chasing our own passions. 
And last week in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, The Lord established David as the king and blessed him like this and this and this and this and this. And then the next verse says, And David took on more wives and concubines. You go, now, What? You know, they, they don't fit together. And this was even, uh, had uh, been, they had been warned against this kind of thing 500 years before David was born, back when he was getting the law of God. So 500 years before this, if you were to look in Deuteronomy 17, Moses is giving God's word to the people. And he says, verse 14, when you come into the land the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then you say, we should have a king like all the nations around us. Now, it took him about 480 years to come up with that idea. He says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among your brothers who shall, you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who's not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, I don't know. I was trying to, you know, you got horses, you got women, you got money. So I don't know whether that's, if you're trying to alliterate this, if that's the Winnie, the women, and the wealth. But <laughs> David didn't have a problem with horses that we know of. And he didn't seem to have a problem with money, even though God gave him a lot and he was very generous uh, with what God had given him there. But in this area of women, it's just uh, David seemed to have a blind spot. And he's vulnerable at this point because so much is going well. He's got power, he's got fame, he's got blessings of God, he's got money, he's got wives galore, and he has choices. So what's the problem with choosing a little lust just for entertainment? I mean, if you feed your lust a little bit, it doesn't stay satisfied for very long. You feed something, it grows. It gets bigger. And this, what's more dangerous even about David in this situation is there's nobody positioned in his life at this point to be his accountability partner. There's nobody who could say, David, I don't think you're going about this right. And by the time you get to 2 Samuel 11, David is resting on his laurels and he's pretty pleased with his accomplishments to date. And he's, so he's treating himself to a staycation. He doesn't even suspect that he's ripe for a crash. Look what happens. Verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, now the reason they go out to battle is because the roads get dry and so they're passable, but there's uh, plenty of crops and so you can feed the army as you go. So David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. This is notable because it's the exception. It's not how he's always done it. His general is Joab and general, that general knows how to fight. Joab was shrewd and he was mean. He'd cut down anybody who crossed his path if he wanted. And he sent a report back telling of outstanding and resounding victories. But, you know, you had a struggle. Does the leader go out front? When the general did that, often the general would get killed. So about 300 years ago, they started putting the general in the back. But the struggle is, do I lead the charge or do I be with my people? Well, David didn't either. He sent Joab. He says, you go do it. I'll take some vacation. I've got some used, you know, lined up. I've either got to use it or lose it. And so I'm going to stay here and just relax. You go to battle. I'll go to bed is kind of what David did. And so verse 2, it happened late one afternoon 
David arose from his bed or his couch, and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a beautiful woman bathing. She was very beautiful. Now, there's nobody standing there, like I said, to say, David, thank God for beauty and keep moving. Hey, David, stop staring at her. David, distract yourself. Go write a psalm. Read a book. Play your harp. Go tickle one of your favorite ten wives. You know, uh, go entertain your toddlers. Go get something to eat. Do anything. But don't feed your lust because it won't be satisfied. It'll only get bigger and brassier and louder and stronger. Nobody said that. And David didn't do that. So verse 3, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, somebody said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Remember, he has no equal. There's nobody to challenge him. I think someone tried. All their name to hear, they're not even their name isn't here. It's just, and, and somebody said this. Because he's a king. And they're trying to send him a message subtly. And they want to show respect. And if he disagrees with them, they don't want to die. But they're basically saying, isn't this Bathsheba? David, she's somebody's daughter. She's somebody's wife. She's married. She's not yours. She's out of bounds. Now, King David personally knew Uriah. When David was out in the wilderness, he had 400 malcontents. Remember, gathered around him. He turned them into his own little army. Then it swelled to 600. Of those 600, there were three that were named for the mighty deeds they did. And then he actually had 30 of them that were listed as his mighty men of war. His 30 mighty men, he called them. If you read the list in 1 Samuel 23, there are 37 on the list of 30 mighty men. Don't worry about that. He just, oh yeah, this one and that one and that one. And the last guy on the list is Uriah the Hittite. And an army of 600 people, these 37 stood out. He must have done something that made him stand out. Uriah was known to David. So have you ever noticed when we start entertaining something stupid or sinful in our heart, it's like we forget all about the Lord. It's like somebody pushed the soft pedal. I mean, he's there all right, but God doesn't shove himself forward into our thoughts. He, he doesn't yell. He doesn't break our concentration. I mean, and suddenly we find ourselves minimizing the, the goodness and guidance of God, and our passions take over. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who died as a martyr during World War II, wrote this in his book, Temptation. Quote, in our members, our bodily members, there is a slumbering inclination towards desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns as in, as in, in flames. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Bonhoeffer goes on. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is this what the flesh really, is this what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Or is it really not permitted to me, yes, expected of me now here in my particular situation to appease my desire? It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command. 
Flee. Run. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry. Flee youthful lusts. Flee the lust of the world. There is no resistance to Satan other than flight. Every struggle against lust in our own strength is doomed to failure. Unquote. So David didn't know that. He sat there and he molded over in his mind and he inquired and he got some more information. And then verse 4 says he sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness and then she returned to her house. So in other words, it was known she wasn't pregnant. The deed was done. Two consenting adults, or so it would seem. After all, if from where she was bathing she could see him, she would know that he could see her. And yet, men, I think he holds the greater responsibility because he's the king, and he has the power, and he took the initiative. And the deed's done, and there's nothing left but regret and crying and internal churning of knowing that you failed God, of you failed yourself, you hurt innocent people, and every day then, keeping quiet and the cover-up and the pretending and the fake piety of trying to still pretend I really love God as much or more today than I did yesterday when he hasn't. Until, verse 5, the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. David, at that point, seems caught in a lie that we often believe ourselves. We think, as long as nobody knows, as long as my reputation is intact, it'll all be okay. <laughs> Who's he fooling? I mean, he asked questions about her to somebody, and he sent somebody to go get her, and she sent somebody to bring word to him. Other people know. Something like this doesn't stay secret, and secrets are deadly. And this one would get whispered and spread faster than a wildfire. Did you hear that King David called for the wife of Uriah to come up to the palace? Yeah, my cousin said so, and blah 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 and on and on they go. And so David quickly concocts a plan. There's nothing in this passage that says, and David inquired of the Lord. It doesn't do that. He just figured, i got to come up with a plan. I mean, he is kind of on self-protect mode, and he doesn't even breathe through his nose. He doesn't even use his whole brain. He just reacts in self-protection. Get her husband home. Let passion run its course. Nobody will be the wiser. And then just keep pretending, living the lie, faking it, looking the part of being the man of God but not really being the man of God. So verse 6 says, David sent word to General Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. I think Joab was pretty shrewd, and he could read between the lines. He doesn't know what the whole story is, but he knows something isn't right. He's calling just for one particular person from the army by name. Now, he would have thought, hey, I know that Uriah and David knew each other before I ever knew David, so something must be up. But he keeps his mouth shut and just fulfills the commander's intent. So here comes this brave warrior back to the city. Why would the king need me? Why would he be calling me? He's coming back to his home city. He's coming back near his house. He's coming back near his true love, or so he thought she was. And he's summoned by the king. I mean, this is unusual. What does the king want? It's outside of the chain of command. And Uriah wasn't the one who usually reported to the king about the comings and goings of the army or of the general. So he must have been nervous and asking himself a lot of questions. But he's a man of integrity. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked well, how's General Joab doing? How are the people, the army doing? How's the war going? And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David's treated this guy like a VIP. He's asked him questions. They've had good conversation. He sends him, he sends him home and sends him with a present. 
go down to your house and wash your feet. <clears throat> well, might be because his feet were dusty, but uh, you, the feet is a euphemism in scriptures for your private parts. So exactly what the king is suggesting here, too, there's an overtone to it. And Uriah picks that up and goes out in direct disobedience to the king's order. He defies it. Because everybody in the army out there with Joab knows that the king is AWOL, that he's not where he's supposed to be and he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. And the king has just given um, Uriah an unlawful order. So verse 9, it says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house. So it's a known secret in the palace. David says to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah says to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths or tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord, the army, are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing because he knows it's against the rules. It's against what God has said when they're going out to fight. And he is, he is saying there is a higher authority than the king. He is unintended, but he has rebuked King David. And his example and his explanation should have basically taken David to school. David could have confessed right at that moment and asked for forgiveness from Uriah himself. It would have been kind of awkward, wouldn't it? Look, while you were gone, I did some things that I have to confess. But he didn't do that. He started with coveting and then moved to adultery and then disregard for God's word and then a cover-up. And he makes it worse. He adds premeditated murder. Murder. He is not thinking like a man after God's own heart. Look at verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence, and he drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. And in the morning, David wrote to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter he wrote, Put Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and back away from him so he'll be struck down and die. Do you know when... We get Uriah is somebody that I want to meet in heaven. He's been a mighty man of David. He's married a beautiful woman. He's been a disciplined warrior. He does the right thing. Even when he's pushed by the king to compromise his standards, and it was clear that the king had compromised his own standards, Uriah did what was right before the Lord. The king couldn't bribe him. The king couldn't induce him with strong drink, couldn't even command him to go home and sleep with his wife. The king had Uriah sentenced to die. For being a righteous person, life is not fair. But when Uriah died, he met God face to face. How do you imagine that conversation went? Welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. See, Uriah is asked by David unwittingly to carry his own death sentence back to Joab. And so Joab did what he was told to do. He put Uriah in the thick of the fighting, then backed everybody away, and Uriah was killed. And so Joab sends word to David and gives an account of the whole battle, and in it says, now be sure to say, Uriah the Hittite died. 
And so in verse 25, you have David's calloused response to Joab. He says, thus shall you say to Joab, telling the messenger, do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And then one of the bigger understatements of the Bible, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David has tried to look like everything's fine. If you had seen him here at church and you'd said, how are you doing today? He would have said, oh, it's just doing great. Everything's fine. He would have given you some surface details from his day or from his week, but inside he's churning. He knows what he's done is wrong. He just, you know, he's thinking, I didn't get caught. But God knows. And God's spirit hasn't been as active guiding his life as much as giving correction. And he's not hearing the voice of God as friend to friend. And God seems silent and waiting. But here's some of what David wrote. And if you have some of this going on in your own life, I'm, I'm not asking you to admit it to anybody, but Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are two of David's prayers that are some of the best when we need to ask for forgiveness. Psalm 32 begins like this. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Psalm 51, starting verse 3, says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. In other words, it's on my thoughts all the time. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David's thinking about it. He's regretful about it. He still marries her. Still going to try to make everything look like, well, her husband died, so I took her in. Now she's having a baby. So God intervenes. God corrects and guides. He sends the prophet Nathan to, to uh, the palace. Nathan is ushered in as the holy man of God, and uh, David's there on his throne, and Nathan says, boy, I have a story to tell you. Uh, there's this rich guy, and he's got all kinds of sheep, and right next to him is this little poor man, and their little family just has one little bitty lamb. They love that lamb. They treat it like a pet. In fact, they treat it like part of their family. They feed it from the table. It sleeps in their bed at night, and it's, they just love this little lamb. Well, the rich guy had a guest come into dinner, and so to get ready for the dinner, they went over and he stole the one little lamb, and he killed it, and he prepared it for the, his guest to eat. And David boiled over with anger, and he said, that man should die. And Nathan said to him, David, you are that man. And then he goes on to say in verse... Seven, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what's evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed her with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he will lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. And before the sun. Sin has consequences. 
Sin can be forgiven if we ask. But the consequences ripple on through our lives and it rippled through David's life. The child that they were going to have dies. And then David's firstborn son, Ammon, raped his half-sister, Tamar. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, had to get even. It took him two years of plotting, but he ended up murdering his brother, Amnon, to avenge his sister. And then he had to flee into hiding. He finally returned to Jerusalem, but he got there and he started planning a revolt against his father. And the coup got so severe that David actually had to leave the city of Jerusalem to save his own life and to flee from the city. And Absalom ravages Jerusalem, particularly David's concubines, on the very palace roof where David had seen Bathsheba. Absalom is killed against David's wishes by General Joab in the fight that ensues. And it's not too much after that that his son Adonijah declares himself king and gathers a following and begins to celebrate. Now there's a curious little verse in 1 Kings 1.6, which is why I say David was an absentee deadbeat dad. And it says, Adonijah's father had never at any time displeased Adonijah by asking, why have you done thus and so? His father never challenged him, never corrected him, never called the values that he was lifting up into question. Well, in this situation here with Nathan standing there, David repents. And he did respond appropriately. He, just, he didn't try to give a defense. He didn't blame it on anybody else. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. And David looks to God, and Psalm 51 is probably the best he prays to be cleansed. He asks for genuine, true repentance. It's not just a, oh, sorry, over his shoulder. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. There is, he's pleading guilty. He begs God for a renewal and a return to the relationship. He says, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Have you ever noticed when you start to dabble with sin that the Holy Spirit just isn't as present? And it breaks, it breaks the communication. David confesses his sin. He takes it seriously. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God, it's a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. David is forgiven by God. And Samuel, or Nathan says to David, well, David first speaks, he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin from you. You will not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you will die. And then Nathan went home. I mean, this is unbelievable. That David, who has stolen a man's wife, put a man to death, 
has committed adultery and lying and cover-up and murder and despised God's word and scorned God, and God's going to just put all of that away? Why? How? Is he a fair judge? You know why he can do it? David didn't know the whole story. We know more of it than David did. And Paul explains some of it in Romans chapter 3. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ's blood, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God isn't brushing David's sin aside. He's not just stuffing it under, sweeping it under the carpet. God in his mercy was able to take all of David's sin and load it onto Jesus Christ on the cross right next to my sin and your sin so that David walked free. He's declared righteous because of the suffering and dying on the cross of Jesus. Years later, he paid the whole bill for David's transgressions, for yours and mine. And those who have faith in Jesus have their sins forgiven. So God has hope for people who struggle with sin. Even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 is lamenting. He says, the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The things I don't want to do, I, find, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who could deliver me? And then you step right into Romans 8. says, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. Because of the Son of, Jesus, uh, Son of God, Jesus. That if you live according to the Spirit, you set your mind on the things of the Spirit. For the set the mind on the flesh is death. Set your mind on the spirit is life and peace. So if Christ is in you, then the spirit of God is forgiving you and becomes life and we're declared righteous. If the spirit of Christ who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, he dwells in you. When we fall into sin, it's sweet for the first moment. But then it turns very bitter and it can be sharp and cutting and painful and deadly. And we can ask God and he will choose to forgive us, not because of us, because of Jesus. Only because of Jesus. If we seriously repent like David did, we'll still live with the consequences of our actions, but our sin will be forgiven. You can thank God for Jesus who paid for your sin with his life and death. And you can thank God's Holy Spirit who guides and corrects and encourages us along the path. And we pray like David did. Hide your face from my sins, O Lord. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Let us pray. Dear God, we pause before you and each of us know how much we need you because we know our own sin. We know where we have done the wrong thing and innocent people have gotten hurt. And we pray that right now as we pause before you that each person will just take this moment to ask for your forgiveness in a genuine, sincere kind of way and know that you can offer us that forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Christ. You didn't take it lightly. 
You made him pay the whole price. So I thank you. Maybe today, even while we're singing or while we're closing, you need to come forward and just to kneel up here at the foot of the cross or on the steps and just to pray with somebody and to be sure you're right with God because God still hates sin, but he loves you and he wants to separate us from our sin as far as the east is from the west and have our sin be remembered no more because of the gracious gift and love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Invite him into your life today. Receive his forgiveness. And let's live as the people who are in pursuit of God's heart. Amen.